0: I know you'll figure that out on your own, but I thought I'd point it out just so that Herb doesn't get blamed. He's in Idaho, and he can't be responsible, and the ladies who so graciously offered to help me with all of it in the office on Friday couldn't because I wasn't done with it on Friday, and so uh, I'm totally responsible for that. Anyway, that, that aside, there are several things about this week's study guide that I want you to take notice. One is... On the inside, there are a bunch of scripture verses listed. They happen to be all 228 verses in the New Testament where the word faith occurs. So, you can do your own faith study, if you like. Every one of these verses and all of the occurrences of the words faith in the New American Standard Bible are found in these verses that I have listed for you in the columns on the inside. Secondly, there's an insert in today's study guide, uses of the word faith in the New Testament in the New American Standard Bible. I have to say that because the NIV might have a little different or the King James, sometimes uh, they translate a word a little differently. But in the New American Standard Bible, 228 verses, 246 times, which means the word faith occurs more than once in a few verses. And I've listed by book, how many times that it occurs. And then I have sought to give you in the columns the way faith is used. Sometimes it's used as a quantity, as in a lot of faith or a little bit of faith. Sometimes it's the operative element. Your faith has made you well. Sometimes it's trusting God for daily life. Sometimes it's a spiritual gift, actually, only in 1 Corinthians, and sometimes it refers to faith which is responsible for salvation. I've done this for you so that you can take this study guide and use it as a study guide. That you can take it home, and over the next several weeks, that you can look and study the times and occurrences of the word faith and draw some of your own conclusions. I'd like you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 8, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8. And in that chapter we find Matthew recording for us the story of a centurion who needed Jesus to heal his servant. Luke also records this story in his seventh chapter, and Luke adds a little more detail to it, telling us that the centurion did not come himself, but he sent some of his servants, trusted ones, to go as his ambassador or his emissary in his behalf. Matthew treats it in the legal sense of the way that it would be treated. The, cer- the centurion is speaking through his, his uh, assigned servants. And Luke tells us the story um, from that perspective. But nonetheless, Jesus comes to Capernaum in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed in that very hour. In the last few months, we've been talking about prayer and the nature of prayer. We've talked about prayer in the spirit and prayer that arises from our own desires. We have talked about listening to God and paying attention to what he's saying and how that relates to prayer. But so far I haven't spoken specifically about the subject of prayer and faith and how those two go together. And I've been meditating on it for quite a while, and as I have been meditating, this story in the Gospels has stood out to me. It has come up in my mind repeatedly. It's very interesting to me because, for one thing, it says in this passage that Jesus is astonished. At what he's seeing. That should make us sit up and take note. When Jesus is astonished. There's something remarkable happening here. The scripture says Jesus is astonished at this man's faith. The other thing that's interesting about this is. In relation to the man himself, the centurion. There is absolutely no mention of faith. In fact, the centurion never brings the subject up. Those who are speaking for him never bring the subject up. They're talking about authority. And yet in this conversation about authority, as the centurion has sent for the help of Jesus, Jesus looks at it and makes the connection with faith. And Jesus makes a statement as he listens to the story he says i have never seen faith of this kind in all of israel this is the greatest demonstration of faith that i have ever seen and here's how here's how the story goes a centurion who is a roman soldier and somewhat politician centurions were 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 soldiers they were ranking officers in the army of rome but they often had acquired those positions, not only by their expertise, but by political appointment. And they ruled over a segment of soldiers and, and all that was involved with that in an, in an area. And so a centurion might be like the, the chief of police of a place like Chicago. And they had importance and significance in the army of Rome. They were Gentiles. Obviously, they were Romans. And this particular centurion, Luke tells us, was sympathetic toward the Israelites. He had come to believe in God and had been sympathetic toward the Jews and had even helped to build one of their synagogues. And yet he recognized that as a Gentile, for a Jew to come into his house left that Jewish person ceremonially unclean. And so in sensitivity to the fact that Jesus was a Jew, a Jewish teacher, a rabbi, that that all of his followers were Jews, he was not requesting that Jesus come into his home. In fact, the Scripture tells us that he sent certain ones to Jesus saying, it is not necessary for you to come, but I have a servant who is sick, and he's in a lot of pain. And I'm concerned for him. And it tells you something about the heart and nature of this guy. He he really cared about this man who was his assistant, his associate. And he said, you don't even have to come to my house. Because this is what I know. I am a man under authority. And I have authority over men. I say to this one, go and he goes. I say to this other one, come, and he comes. I say to this one, do this, and he does it. So he says, I know that all you have to do is speak the word, and it will be done. And at that, Jesus is astonished. He is amazed. It's all he can do to believe that a Roman Gentile has clearly understood who He is, that is who Jesus is, when all of Israel and all of His disciples have never got it. All the people that Jesus healed thus far in the Gospels, they have come to Him. They've wanted Him to come to them or they've come to Him. If you'll just touch Me, if you'll put your hands on Me, if I can just touch you, if they they believed that there was some kind of power emanating from this great teacher and if they could just get close enough to him they could come under the aura of his power or if they could connect with him in some way that they would be influenced by his compassion and his power and they would also get the healing they almost looked at him like he was some kind of um good luck charm or some uh, person who could bring them fortune and And they were following him for that reason. But here is this centurion who says, I don't need to touch you. I don't need you to come to me. I don't need you to put your hands on my servant. I don't even have to see you. I have confidence that if you speak the word, it will happen. And he gives this rationale I too am a man under authority, and I have authority. In other words, he connected who Jesus really was. A man with authority under authority. He knew that that backing Jesus was all the power and authority of God. All the power and authority of heaven. He knew that. Just as all of Rome and Caesar stood behind him. And he knew that when he spoke the word, the, the empire was behind his word. That whatever he did, the empire would, have, would enforce. He, he was a man under the authority of the Roman Empire. And Caesar backed him. And he also had authority that when he spoke the word, people jumped. They really listened to what he had to say. Because all of Rome was behind him. And he said, I know who you are, Jesus. I know that you are connected with the authority of the universe. And I know that all you have to do is speak the Word and the elements obey your voice. It doesn't require your presence. You don't have to touch anyone. All you have to do is say it. And I know it will be done. And Jesus said, this is the most amazing thing. He said, I've never seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. Because this centurion understood what they had all missed. That, that the God who is, and the God who holds all things together by the word of His power, the God who sits in the control station, the control position of all the universe, the God who has all authority and power, is a God who can do anything He wants to do. And that Jesus had come from this God, and that He had authority, and He could simply speak, and it would be done. This is an amazing thing. I want us to recognize this morning that there is a direct connection between the quality and the quantity of our faith and our understanding of authority. There's a direct connection between what we believe and can conceive as possible and what we know and believe about God. In fact... The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, And without faith, it, it is impossible to please Him. And then he says this, And everyone who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. There are two elements that are essential to, In the nature of faith. The first one is we must believe that God is. Now, when I say that, I'm not just simply saying believe that He exists. When God revealed Himself to Moses at the burning bush, and Moses said, Whom shall I say sent me? God said to him, Tell Pharaoh, I am that I am has sent you. In other words, He was saying to Moses, I am the eternal one. I am the self-existing one. I am eternal life. I am the power of the universe. I am the supreme God. There's no God like me. Tell Pharaoh, God has sent you the eternal I am. And so when the writer of Hebrews is saying to us, those who come to God must believe that He is, He is basically referring to this understanding of God that includes all of His nature. You have to believe that He is. You have to believe not only that He exists, but that He has all power. You have to believe, as the psalmist says, there is no God like our God. You have to believe that He is the strong one. You have to believe that that He is Lord of the universe. You have to believe that He holds all things together by the word of His power. You have to believe that there's nothing impossible for him that he is almighty god he controls the elements uh, of all the miracles of the bible the one that really stumps me it, you know we, we talk of creation but that was setting things in motion we talk about the parting of the red sea that was a pretty dramatic miracle we talk about all the things that god has done certainly the most powerful demonstration Of God's power is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ there's no question that that stands at the epitome but one of the ones that stands out to me is the greatest mind-boggling miracle of all time is when Joshua was fighting a battle and they were running out of daylight and they needed more daylight in order to pursue the enemy and secure the victory and God caused the sun to stand still in the sky. I don't know if you thought about that, but that's a pretty amazing feat. Physicists just shake their head and say that's not, not even possible. That's biblical fantasy. There's no way that could happen. But our Bible tells us that God caused the sun to stand still in the sky. I don't know how he did that. I don't know if the Earth stopped rotating. That's the only way I can conceivably can physically conceive of that happening. But somehow or another, God extended the period of daylight to to exist all through the night. What would have been the night? And you just look at that and you say, God can God can do anything. He can still the storm. He can calm the seas. God has authority and power to do whatever He wants to do. Jesus is in the boat with His disciples. And he's asleep, and the, and the storm comes up at sea. And all of a sudden, <clears throat> these experienced fishermen are confident of the fact that they're about to go to the bottom of the sea. They're about to sink. The, the storm is so severe. And they wake Jesus up, and in my mind's eye, I can I can kind of see this scenario. As Jesus has been curled up, uh, perhaps on some extra sail or blankets or something, in the you know, in the ship, he's curled up, taking a nap, he's tired, he's sleeping. And, and they finally are shaking him, and they say, Master, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? And I can see Jesus kind of rubbing the sleep out of his eyes. Do you ever fall asleep on the train or in the car, hopefully when you're a passenger not driving? I'm falling asleep sometimes when I was driving, that's a little scary, but... You know, but, but you've been asleep for a while in the motion, but you wake up and it's like, oh man, where am I? What's happening? And, and I can just see Jesus doing that and kind of wiping the sleep out of his eyes. And Wow, it's really raining. And the disciples are saying, hey, Master, we're perishing! And he, and he just he wakes up and he looks around and he says, Be still! And, and the wind quits and the waves stop and everything is calm and the disciples go, whoa, even the wind and the waves obey him. And he goes, guys, you don't have any faith at all? Where's your faith? And now they're really astonished. What do you mean, where's our faith? We're in the middle of a storm. It was going to sink the ship. What's wrong with you? But Jesus had given them enough information that they should have known They were on a mission that was not finished. And when you're on a mission from God and it's not finished, nothing can take you out until the job is done. Jesus was perfectly content to sleep in the ship because he knew he wasn't going to sink. He knew that before he laid his head down. It mattered not one whit what was going to go on out there. It didn't matter to him. He knew that He was not going to die in that sea that day, regardless of how it looked then or later. And the disciples, I think, by the way He reacted to them, should also have known that. He is the one who controls the elements. He controls the universe. He holds the atoms together. He holds the elements of the molecules together. He is the one that has it all, figuratively speaking, in the palm of his hand, and he can do whatever he wants. There is nothing too hard for our God. He controls the hearts and minds of men and women. The scripture says the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it whichever way he wishes. Are you dealing with someone in your life that is stubborn and obstinate and God wants to move you forward and they're in the way? God can change their heart. God can get their attention. God can, can move... I'm not saying that He's going to step into somebody's life and take over their life and control them like a puppet... and and tell them they have to be saved or not, or everything like that. I don't think that's the point of, of that Scripture passage at all. But I think what the Bible is telling me is, do you see someone in authority who is ruling over an area or a region, or even has authority over your life? Let me introduce you to someone who has authority over him. Let me introduce you to someone who has power over her. Let me introduce you to God who can control the heart of the king. Because he has ultimate authority in every situation. There is nothing too hard for our God. We're told that if we come to God, we must first of all believe that he can do anything he chooses to do. Nothing can hold him back. He is in supreme control and has absolute unlimited capacity to do anything he wants to do. There's nothing too hard for our God. You must believe that He is. But you know, that's not enough. That's not enough to constitute faith that will invoke the action of God on your behalf because the Scripture says the demons have got that part down. James says even the demons believe this and they tremble. You remember when Jesus was casting the the, the demons out of the Gadarene? You remember the question they ask him: Have you come to torment us before the time? They know their destiny. They know they're going to lose to him. They know that one day they're going to be cast into the fires of judgment. They know the game is over. They're just playing it out of spite. They know he's an authority. Have you come to to, to deal with us in judgment before the time? They recognized Him. They knew who He was. Didn't save them. Didn't change their actions. There was no repentance. But even the demons believe in God. And they tremble. And so the writer of Hebrews says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. We must believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Now, I doubt that there's a person in this room this morning that does not believe that God exists and that He has power in all the ways that I've described. But there may be many of you in this room this morning who are not convinced that He will work on your behalf. That He loves you. That you are the apple of His eye. That He holds you next to His heart. That He cares about you and is willing to become involved in the affairs of your life. You see, it's one thing to believe God can. It's another thing to believe that He will. It's one thing to believe that God can move mountains. It's another thing to believe that He will move the one in front of you. And Hebrews says, faith is that conviction. Not only based in the authority and in the power of God, but the conviction based in the love of God and the grace of God And the mercy of God that He will act on your behalf and that He cares about you. Do you believe this morning that God knows your name and that He's interested in your life? That's the key question. What is the nature of this faith that we're talking about? First of all, I heard this past week, Charlotte and I were talking about this, and she mentioned to me something I had never heard before, but I found it interesting. I tried to think if I could find an exception to it. I don't think I can. that faith is the only doctrinal term that's ever defined for us in Scripture. It's very interesting, isn't it? We're actually given a definition of faith. And here's how it's defined. Hebrews 11.1 Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The evidence, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. When the Bible talks about hope, for example, the Bible speaks to us about the blessed hope the return of Jesus Christ and His return for us. It's called the blessed hope. Or when the Bible speaks of those who die in the faith and go on into the presence of the Lord, and and it says we sorrow, but not as those who have no hope. We have grief, but it's not the same kind of grief that those who have no hope experience. When the Bible uses that word hope, it's not talking about wishful thinking. It's not talking about fantasy. It's not talking about dreaming and and, uh, desiring. It's talking about something that you know for sure God is going to do, but it just takes time to get there. It's a done deal. It's a finished work. It's going to happen. Jesus is coming back, and He's coming for you, and He's coming for me. The Bible says that is our blessed confidence. When we die, to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. We sorrow, not like those without hope, because we have the confidence that our loved ones are living in the presence of God, who know Jesus, and that we're going to be there to join them someday, that it is not the end. And so faith is the substance, uh, the assurance of things hoped for. It is the confidence I have in my heart that what God has said is going to be happening, is going to come to pass, even though I don't see it at this point in time. It's the absolute conviction to have faith and to believe what God has said is the conviction and certainty that it is a done deal. It's like money in the bank. It's like a confidence of, of what you absolutely know for sure. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The absolute confidence of things not seen. It's the, the knowledge of God that leads to complete trust. <clears throat> but secondly, faith is something that must be rooted in truth it must be rooted in truth it has no power of its own today there's a lot of talk about faith there's a lot of new age materials written about faith there's a lot of uh name it claim it stuff talking about faith there's a can't remember the name of it but there's a dvd out, I don't know, you can see it in the different bookstores at the checkout counters. You can buy this DVD. It's kind of based on the background of Napoleon Hill and, and W. Clement Stone and, and the visualization crowd that, you know, that says you can be all that you want to be. You want to be the number one salesman? You just have to visualize that. Visualize yourself going to the company banquet and receiving the award. Visualize it hanging on your office wall. You want to have a new home? Just visualize that new home. You want to be in the executive suite, just visualize your rise to power. Just believe that every day. Get up and look in the mirror and say, I I am healthy, I am happy, I am terrific, and I can do it. Just believe, believe. Put that, you know, that's all very good unless it happens to be a lie. You may not be healthy. (laughs) You may not be terrific. You may be happy because you're stupid. And you're believing a lie. There are people who are going to go to hell believing a lie. That's the greatest greatest deception and sadness of all, is people who believe in the wrong God. People who believe in the wrong faith. People who have faith in a lie. And they're going to die without Christ. And they're not going to know the truth until they open their eyes in eternity and realize they have missed it. I take no joy when I hear of great atheists and great agnostics who have defied God and written books about rationalism and the cosmos and whatever, and I learn that they die. I don't take any joy in that. It grieves my heart because I know the moment they breathe their last breath and open their eyes in eternity, they knew the truth for sure. And it makes me sad. People can believe a lot of things in deception. But if they're not true, it's useless. 1 Corinthians fifteen fourteen and 17, Paul makes this statement twice. He says, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then your faith is worthless. Is if Christ is not risen from the dead, then you are hopeless and your faith has no value. It does not do any good to have faith. I understand what C.S. Lewis meant when he said if all of Christianity turned out to be a lie, it would still make the most sense to live as a Christian. I understand what he meant, I think. And I appreciate him saying it but the truth of the matter is if Christianity turns out to be a lie you better grab all you can get all you can and, and do all you can while you can because it's, the only thing that has meaning is have fun because really nothing has meaning and, and, and living sacrificially and, and living with convictions and, and, and living in a godly way when there is no God makes no sense Paul said, if Christ is not risen, our faith is worthless. So it isn't faith in faith. It's faith in truth that makes a difference. It's faith in God that makes a difference. It isn't your faith that makes things happen. It's God who makes things happen and our faith in Him and conviction that what He has said is true that is the operative effect. If you're believing a lie, you're deceived. And by the way, the enemy helps with deception. He comes in as an angel of light and he'll help you along. He'll even answer a few prayers for you if it'll serve to further sink his hooks. He's not beyond giving you some things that you want in terms of luring you down a path of deception. You have to be sure you have faith in truth. True truth as God has revealed it. Then faith has quantity. It has strength or weakness. This is the first thing that got me intrigued on this study of looking at all the verses in the New Testament where the word faith occurred and reading them. Because Jesus says of this centurion, he was astonished because I have never seen such great faith in all of Israel. And then he said to his disciples in the boat, O ye of little faith, or where is your faith? And then as I read, I found many verses that talk about faith. It can be great or it can be weak. It can be strong or it can be non-existent, as in faithless. Faith can also grow. There are scriptures of pa- There are passages of Scripture that talk to us about our faith growing. How is it that faith grows? How can your faith grow? Faith is like a muscle. When you don't use a muscle, it atrophies. It weakens. It it quits functioning. If you put an extremity in a cast for a long enough period of time or in a sling and don't use it at all, the very weakness will render that limb immobile. But if you are actively engaged in a program of exercise or strength training, or you're using your muscles, or you're working with them, assuming the nerves are going there and all those other things, those of us that have pinched nerves understand that uh, sometimes the best intentions are, are failing because the throughput isn't happening. But anyway, uh, like a muscle that's exercised, it gets stronger. Faith can grow with use. It can become strong. And as we walk with God, we build a faith history. We have those experiences. You remember the Israelites when they crossed over the Jordan River and they went into the land of promise as God had promised them and they took rocks out of the bottom of the Jordan and they built a monument. They built a mound. There were, there were rocks. They took 12 stones, one for every tribe, and they built this monument. And this is what Joshua said, Whenever your children say, what's that pile of rocks mean? You can say to them, up until this moment in time, God has helped us. This is the proof. These rocks used to be at the bottom of that river. But one day God caused that river to dry up and we crossed on dry land. We marched into this land and began to conquer this for the glory of God. And that pile of rocks reminds us that God has helped us. That's translated in the King James Bible, the Ebenezer. And for those of you that actually know the hymn, Here I Raise My Ebenezer, that's what it's talking about. So, do you have any Ebenezers in your life? That's not a crotchety old man. That's a a pile of rocks. That's testament to the fact that God has helped me. God has, has been present, and here's the proof. You know, some people get saved They come to Christ. They trust Him for salvation. They step inside the threshold of salvation. And and it's like they open a camp stool and park, and they never go anywhere after that. They don't have any faith experiences. To tell you the truth, I'm not even sure, personally, that they have saving faith. That's for God to figure out, the individual with Him. But I, I wonder sometimes if people are even born again when there's zero growth after conversion. But when we talk about growth and growing in Christ, we're talking about growing in faith. Learning day by day to trust God more. And then as God asks you to do something that seems like, man, is that crazy? You want me to cross the river? It's flood time. Come on, what's the deal? And God says, yeah, I want you to cross the river. I want you to, just do, I want you to go down there. I want you to put your feet in it. And I'm going to dry it up. You know, and I can just see those priests saying, they've got the ark on their shoulders, they're going down and saying, man, I don't know if this is such a good idea, but what have we got to lose? We can trust God. You know, sometimes faith is not just all bold, charge ahead, it's like, there's still a lot of water there. But as they put their feet in the water, It dried up. And they were able to go across. And now they have a story to tell. (laughs) Do you know what God did? They marched around Jericho seven times. This is crazy. March? We're here to fight. No, I just want you to march and blow trumpets. Just praise God. You've got to be kidding me. Seventh day, I want you to do it seven times. Walls fall down. Whoa. This is amazing. Faith story is building. What faith story is God building in your life? You will grow strong as you trust God. As you Talk to God as you come to God. He that comes to God must believe that He is and He's a rewarder. Are you in prayer? Are you communicating with God? Are you connected with God? Is He taking you step by step, day by day? Are you seeing His power in your life so that you're building those piles of rocks? Ah, He helped me here. He helped me here. He helped me here. I can trust God for the next step. Or are you looking at the circumstances, the winds, the waves, the storms, the problems, the mountains, and saying, man, ah, God may be up there, but I don't think He can do anything for me. I'm not even sure if He's up there half the time. Strong faith or weak faith? Strong faith or weak faith? You, you, you have no use, you have atrophy you have exercise you have strength where are you going with god it can be weak or strong it can grow it can increase faith in god is required for everything in the spiritual walk did you know that nothing will come to you in your walk with god apart from faith nothing will come to you apart from faith you must believe god in fact to have no faith is to sin against him it's to deny his power and his love and he's given us enough proof to trust them both faith must be acted upon to be real it's not just a state of mind if you look at all those verses in James do you know what James deals mainly with in the subject of faith faith without works is dead Faith without works is dead. You say, how, how, do you, how do you define faith and works? Faith is stepping out and acting on what God has said. I'm going to get to that in a moment, because I, I've got to finish the sermon before I'm finished with the sermon. But faith is stepping out and acting on what you believe. Have you trusted God for salvation? Do you believe that your good works cannot get you into heaven? Do you believe that you can can never be good enough to please God? Do you believe that in your own strength you can never keep the law? Are you trusting Jesus Christ and the finished work that He has done on the cross to forgive your sin and to give you a place in heaven and to live in you and produce in you the life of Christ? How do you put feet to that? Stop trying. Stop trying and start believing. That's how you do that. That's the proof that you believe. Stop trying to be good. Did I say that? Yes, I did. Stop trying to be good. Start trusting Jesus to do it in and for you. Stop trying to hedge your bet. Oh, I'm trusting Jesus, but I've got to be sure I do enough good works on the side, just in case. The Scripture says if you're going at it with that attitude, you don't even have saving faith. I'm sorry. Read Read Galatians. And those of you that you're convinced enough that you need God to forgive your sin and, and to, to, to remove them from your life and to give you a home in heaven, but now you think, man, the only way I can, I, I can do this Christian thing, now I'm going to have to work for him to make sure I've got it sealed, you know? Paul says in Galatians, are, are you foolish? You foolish Galatians. What's wrong with you? Do you think having begun in the Spirit, you're now going to go on in the flesh? You can't do this. Stop trying to do this. Trust God. So when you get up in the morning, do you trust God or do you rely on yourself? When you get up in the morning, you say, Lord, I'm counting on you today to live through me. I'm counting on you to tell me the right things to do. I'm, I'm counting on you to, to deal with the issues in my life. I'm counting on you to handle my work. I'm counting on you... to to walk in and through me today in your power because I know I can't do anything. And now I'm just going to trust you. Trusting God is a place of amazing rest. One who has ceased from his labor has entered into the Sabbath rest of God. That's exactly what it's talking about. I told this illustration, the first sermon I ever preached when I was 16 years old. I know you've heard it about 10 times or more over the years. But it just fits well here. Will you indulge me one more time? Remember the story about the wheelbarrow and the tightrope? How many of you have heard that story before? How many of you have never heard that story? Oh, good. I have a fresh audience. (laughs) Well, there's this tightrope walker. And he's world famous. I don't know. may have been the great Linda. I don't remember. And I don't know if he was at Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon or something else. I've forgotten. But anyway, he's got this tightrope stretched out and he's been walking back and uh, back and forth and doing tricks and everybody's amazed and he has this wheelbarrow sitting at the edge of the canyon mouth and he comes back and he says, how many of you believe I can push this wheelbarrow across this tightrope? And you know, there's people in the crowd, yeah, man, yeah, do it, do it, do it. And he looks at the guy right in the front row and he says, You, sir, get in. Do you believe it or not? If you believe it, you'll go for the ride. That's what James says. He doesn't say your works are what earns it for you. He says your works demonstrate your confidence. Do you believe God? Are you going to put your money where your mouth is? Are you going to put your feet... Where your convictions lie? Are you going to take the step of faith? What is God asking you to do? Are you trusting Him? It has to be acted upon. It can't just be a mind thing. Faith has got to be something you step out and take by faith. Faith is a shield and a defense against the enemy. Our faith in God is a shield and a defense against the enemy. Ephesians chapter 6 says, take up the shield of faith. It's that shield of faith that will enable you to, to wield it against all the missiles and fiery darts of the wicked one. The shield of faith that will be your defense. Other scripture passages speak of faith as our defense. wanna I ventured into this in the first hour and I felt that it was of God. I'm I'm going to go there with you. I didn't plan to say this originally as I was preparing the message. But I want to talk to you about the kind of defense and shield that faith can be. And, And about our own personal healing and experience in our lives. I cannot guarantee every one of you I cannot guarantee you this morning that you will never suffer from cancer, diabetes, or heart disease, or other forms of disease or trauma. I can't promise that. And if you do come down with one of those diseases, I can tell you that it is the nature of God to heal. That is His heart. But I cannot guarantee you that every one of you will be healed. One thing I can tell you for sure, unless Jesus comes... Soon, every one of us is going to die, and we're going to die of something. The ultimate healing is, of, the, of the physical body is tied up in the resurrection. And when these bodies come out of the ground at the trumpet of God, there will be total, complete, physical healing. But here's what I can tell you God will do in the present time. And I want you to understand by faith that the story of salvation in your own life personally, salvation has a past tense, a completed work. It has a future tense that is our blessed hope. And it has a present tense, which is our present existence. The past is that I have been born again to a living hope by the Spirit of God, that He lives in me. That is a done deal. God has placed in my life the earnest, the down payment of my salvation, the earnest money, the Holy Spirit, has been put on deposit in me, guaranteeing that God is going to redeem what He purchased on the cross in Jesus Christ. I am guaranteed eternal life in Jesus Christ, now and forever, and I have been sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. That is all past tense. And one day, God will sound the trumpet and and this decaying, dying body will one day go in the ground if Jesus tarries. But the trumpet will sound and this body of mine will come out of the ground. God will call it back together from the elements. God will restore it to a spiritual body. Not a spirit, but a spiritual body. And I will be fully healed. I will have no sickness. I will have no pain. I will have no disability. I will have no weakness. I won't even have any physical needs. My body will be totally and completely and eternally whole. And that's the future. But in this present moment, the Holy Spirit has promised that He will work in our lives a process of sanctification, bringing us victory over the flesh. And when he's speaking of the flesh, he's not talking about skin and bones. He's talking about the old nature, the old man, that which was damaged in Adam. And a part of that is our soulish existence. And faith as a shield protects us in areas of depression and fear, anxiety, angry outbursts and emotional disorders of all kinds. Now, I've already been here once today, so I don't have as much trepidation as I did at the 8 o'clock service, but I, but I just want to tell you, every time I say this, every time I, people get injured, they get hurt, some have left the church, and I just want to tell you that if I hurt you by what I'm going to say this morning, if I, if I injure you, I want you to come and talk to me. I don't want you to just shut, close your ears and close your mind and go away wounded. Because what I'm about to say is not an easy thing, but it is a true thing. I cannot tell you that God will heal you of cancer. But I can tell you that it is not God's will for you, and he will heal you of angry outbursts. He will heal you from anxiety disorders, and he does not want you to live in a depressed or bipolar state. I know that for a fact. Now, you can tell me that those diseases are genetic. I don't doubt that there are genes for them. I don't have any question about that. They seem to have isolated some, particularly in bipolar disorder. All that means is that you are wired by genetic failure to go in a certain direction. You may have an anxiety disorder. You may have been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. You may suffer from that. You have Fears that come upon you that you can't explain, and and it gives you panic attacks, and you struggle with those things. I've had panic attacks. I'm, I'm not talking out of my ear here like I've never, I remember the first time it ever happened to me. I was traveling, I was away from town, I checked into a hotel by myself in a distant city, I think it was Seattle or something. And all of a sudden, I had shortness of breath. I had chest pain. I I thought I was having a heart attack. I couldn't get my breath. I thought I was going to die. I called my doctor long distance, got him on the phone. John, I think I'm going to die. Told him my symptoms. And he said, well, I can't say for sure, but I think you may be having a panic attack. I know what that feels like. But this I know. The Scripture says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. The Scripture says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication let your requests be made known to God and the Peace of God, which goes beyond all reason and rational comprehension, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That I know. And I'm here to tell you this morning that by faith, God will deal with your anxiety. By faith, God will deal with your panic disorder. By faith, God will deal with your angry outbursts. If you're bipolar by faith, God will enable you to behave responsibly so that you don't do wild and crazy things in your manic phases and then crawl into a hole of depression in your downswings. And if you suffer from depression, God will give you victory in your life by faith. I, I, I'm not talking again. Out of my, I know what I'm talking about. I probably have endogenous causes for depression. That means it's on the hard drive. It's wired into my genes. I also tend to, to go down that, that path when life gets overwhelming for me or I get too tired. I've suffered through three major depressions in my life, one of which lasted three years shortly before I came to McHenry in 1985. So I am not talking about something I know nothing about. I'm not telling you to quit your medicine today. I'm not telling you to stop seeing a counselor. It could be a good idea depending on the counselor, but I'm not telling you to do that. But here's what I know. God will show you how to walk in victory above the symptoms that will drag you down. He'll enable you to go to work. He'll enable you to behave responsibly. He'll enable you to walk by faith. He'll enable you by grace to do the things that you ought to do. One of the problems with depression is you lose all ambition. You lose all interest. You lose all joy. You don't want want to do anything. Some people don't. They just stop. God will give you the grace to act. He'll give you the grace to perform. He'll give you the grace to do what you need to do. Your mind blocks. You forget stuff. You don't sleep well. But God will enable you to live by faith and victory. Now, if if what I'm telling you this morning right now is is really bugging you and you just want to take me by the neck and choke me till I'm dead, then I I want you to come talk to me. I do not want you to come choke me. I want you to come talk to me. I want you to come see me and talk about what's good because I want to tell you that God is able. And very recently in the last several months I've been fighting that battle of depression again. I, I thought it was like gone forever and I don't know, just the last couple of years it seems like there's just been this d and in the last several months I've become aware that I'm dealing with depression. And and, and I was just like on the brink of that slippery dark hole that, that wants to suck you into this cloud of blackness. And I had this crazy, wild thought one day. It was, gee, I I could just go there and I wouldn't have to be responsible. Ooh, that sounds annoying and scary. And then I heard God very clearly say to me, just in the last few days, you have a choice. You can trust me. Or you can go by your emotions. But you have a choice. You know what? I want to trust God. I don't want to live there. That's no fun. I want to trust God. I choose to trust God. I choose not to walk that path by faith. And my God is able. The enemy comes at us with all kinds of assaults. Hopelessness is his forte. He wants you to believe there's no answer for you. He wants you to believe there's no remedy. The enemy comes with accusations. He comes with fiery darts. He comes with all kinds of ways that he wants to deceive you and beat you down and and pile you up with problems. But faith is a shield that reinforces that. Conviction of holding it against the darts of the evil one and believing God Despite the fact that there's a storm raging around you. The waves may be high, the wind may be strong, the rain may be torrential. But our God is on the throne and he's not done with you. And you don't have to give in. You can walk by faith. It's a shield. But where does faith come from in the final analysis? It is the assurance of things hoped for. It has to be rooted in truth. It can grow or it can shrink. It is required for everything in the spiritual walk. It has to be acted upon to be real. It is a shield and defense against the enemy. But where does it come from? Fortunately, the Bible answers that question as well. John 15:7. Jesus said, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. In Romans ten seventeen, a passage admittedly that is in the context of salvation. Now faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God is nonetheless supported throughout the rest of the New Testament in the general teaching about faith. Faith comes from hearing. And hearing comes from the Word of God. You cannot believe today for something that you have not heard from God. Do you think you need a new car? Have you been praying about a new car? I don't mean new, new. Maybe it's new to you. But have you been praying about a car? Okay, then you cut out a picture of the car that you want. (laughs) I didn't plan to go there. We'll have a conversation later. (laughs) This just came out. It's an inside joke. But I don't recommend that you cut a picture out of the paper and tape it on the wall and start believing for that car unless God has told you that. You need a new house? Have you been praying for a house? You need a job? You want to be the number one salesman? Whatever it is. What has God said to you? What has God said to you? Have you heard the voice of the Lord? You can only have faith in what you have heard from God because that is sure and true. I want to, Again, I want to be very careful, but I want to explain something to you. Just It's just the nature of the way it is. When, we have, when people come and have prayer for healing, we anoint with oil. I just want to be very upfront and tell you, I believe that. I believe the Scriptures. The Scripture says, is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. In the name of the Lord, in the prayer of faith, shall save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed any sins, they'll be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another. We have a problem with that verse. Maybe that's why we don't see more. But anyway... Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. For the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I believe that Scripture. I believe when you have significant sickness, don't call me to the next time you have a cold, but if you have significant sickness and, and you have been laid low, if you've got the flu, you might want to call for the elders. I hope they don't show up with a mask. But if, if, if you are laid low and you call for the elders, the Scripture says that's in obedience by faith. That's what God tells you to do. Call for the elders. Let them come. Let them pray over you. Let them anoint you with oil. Let them pray for you in the name of the Lord. I believe that. And, and, and I believe it's the nature of God to heal. And I believe Jesus purchased it for us in the atonement. I also believe in His sovereign mystery. There are some who get healed and some who don't. When I pray, I approach God on the basis of the faith of his word and say, Lord, I'm doing what you told me to do and now I put this person in your hands. I want to ask you to heal them. But sometimes, God says to me, I am going to heal this person. And when I hear that, I understand exactly what Jesus was doing in the front of the tomb of Lazarus when he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me and that you always hear me. Now, Lazarus, come out of there. Sometimes God says, I'm going to do this. And when I hear that, I know it's a done deal. I don't even have to ask, in the name of Jesus, rise up. I know that. I have heard God say those words in healing situations. And I don't have the gift of healing. That's not, that's not one of my spiritual gifts. But nonetheless, God has told me times when he wants to do something, and he does it. I can have confidence in that. I remember a time when we were looking for property in Tennessee. I've told you this story before, but the church had outgrown its facilities, and they were rented facilities. We were meeting in a sales auditorium and renting places in a motel, and we were praying for property. It wasn't that I was praying at this particular moment, but we had been praying as a church that God would give us a piece of land, that he would show us where he wanted the church built. And one day I was driving on 31 South. Yes, there's a 31 in Tennessee also. I was driving on 31 South between Brentwood and Franklin, and I saw a sign stuck in the side of the bank, because it was like a six-foot-high bank, but I saw a sign stuck in the side on an angle that said, For Sale. It was not even on my mind at the moment, but what I heard God say as I drove by that sign was, that's the property, that's what I'm going to give you, that's where you're going to build. Did you know from that second forward, I never had any doubt in my mind that that was going to be where the church was? That is, there's a church standing there today. There's a building, a church building on that. It was ours at one time. That's another story. But we bought that land and built a church there by the grace of God. I even showed up at the closing for that piece of property, long story short. I didn't have the check in hand because my superintendent didn't think you should spend the money on an overnight package, and we had requisition funds, and I didn't even have the check at the closing, but I showed up at closing, and I sat there at the conference table in the attorney's office, and when they said, now we need to exchange the documents, Paul, do you have the check? I said, no, I don't have the check, you know, and here's the sellers, and here's my attorney, and. Uh, looking like no money honey we can't do nothing with no money but I knew that God wanted us to have that property he said I don't know what to tell you it's in the mail and I didn't get it and I'm here without it and my attorney looked at the sellers and he looked at me and he says well what do you think we ought to do and the seller's like and my attorney who was already representing us free said well I guess I'll cover it today for $10,000 he wrote a check out of his own funds to close the deal and then I gave him the one that came in the mail a few days later God overcomes obstacles when he wants to do something God does amazing things I'm not saying that You will hear the word of God in every situation in your life. You know, sometimes I think God just says, look, I gave you a brain. You know the principles of my word. You know the scripture. What do you want to do? I really believe God does that. I don't expect for him to tell me everywhere I should park my car. I don't expect him to have a word from the Lord when I go to find a parking place. I do believe this if I'm about to put it in the wrong spot and God knows for some reason it doesn't need to be there, I do believe He'll tell me, don't park there. Otherwise, I think the parking lot's open. It's my choice. There's a lot of things that God doesn't tell you on a day, He doesn't give you every single word. But when you need to have information in your life, when there's something where you need to trust God, ask God, are you praying for someone's salvation? Ask God how to pray. Are you praying for healing? Ask God how to pray. Do you need a job? Do you need decisions? Do you need to make choices that are significant? Ask God. And sometimes He leads you through His Word and and the general truths that you have learned and grown and developed with Him. If you're about to get out of the will of God, you will hear a word behind you saying, "Uh uh-uh, don't stop. When you hear that caution, you need to stop and say, Okay, God, I I got that. Don't go that way. What do I need to know? But when God speaks his word, his rhema into your life and tells you what he wants you to do, you can take it to the bank. It's a done deal. You can have faith in that and that's where God wants to bring us in prayer when we can hear the voice of God in whatever circumstances or realm church wise, personal whatever it is is—that I can hear God and by faith trust Him to do what He will do Father I want to pray this morning that you will increase our faith you've said that that can be done I want to ask you to do it I want to ask you throughout this room this morning in every person in this room Today, will you increase their faith by this message that they have heard? Will you speak to their heart that they will go out of this place with the conviction that you can act on their behalf and that they can believe you for it? Will you increase their faith? Lord, I pray that you would bring us to that place where we walk in obedience and walk by faith and live by faith so that we hear you more clearly and build a faith history stories of your intervention that give us confidence and, and trust that you are a loving God who can act and who will act and who wants to act on our behalf. Lord, increase our faith that we might be effectual fervent prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. you have a closing song, brother?